I think I probably feel a little bit overdressed tonight. But I felt really underdressed this morning. And uh, this morning I was preaching in St. Salvador's University Chapel in St. Andrews. And uh, it was a rather interesting experience. You know, I was confined to a high pulpit. And um, I really was told I mustn't speak for more than 15 minutes. And uh, I managed, I think, 17. And so I I really need to get it. So do you want me to try and do 17 tonight? We'll see what happens. It's probably unlikely. And uh, so whenever I arrived, um, they said, you know, do you want to wear a gown? And uh, I said, well, it's really up to you, but I'm quite happy the way I am. But I realized, like, everybody was so like, even the people that took up the collection, like, were wearing robes. Um, The girl that read the lesson was wearing a gown. Like, all the choir who were brilliant, like, away up in the balcony, were all really, like, dressed, you know, with red robes as well. But in the end... It doesn't really matter, does it, you know, how people are dressed or whatever. What's important is that God, by his Holy Spirit, speaks through his words. And uh, I was actually really encouraged. Um, You know, I sort of went to the door along with uh, the senior chaplain of the university. Um, And, uh, you know, the first man that came out and shook my hand was a retired university professor. And he just held my hand and said, you know, I would love to spend more time to talk to you. But he said, I just felt that every word you spoke this morning, you were just speaking to me. And, uh, you know, a number of responses like that this morning. So it's amazing, even in 17 minutes, it's amazing how God can speak. But it does mean that I'd already start this morning, and uh, I'm probably at the stage where I'm quite tired tonight. So... uh, It may be that I might just drift off halfway through the sermon. But we're coming to uh, the third in our series uh, in the seven churches. And uh, it begins in verse 12 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And uh, you'll see there where Ephesus is, um, the first study that we had. And then just north of that, also on the coast, Smyrna. And now we're going right up to the most northerly Uh, town um, of Pergamum, right up in the northwest of what is present-day Turkey. And uh, you'll see if you follow the dots that it's almost like a circular letter. So next week it'll go to Thyatira and then finish up back south again at Laodicea. And sometimes it's really hard to try and get a picture of what these towns or cities were like. And so here's like a modern reconstruction of part of Pergamum. Like, these were just full of architectural brilliance and uh, some amazing buildings. So don't think of, you know, a little village or a little town full of mud huts just because it was 2,000 years ago. Like, this was the center of ancient civilization. And Pergamum was one of the most uh, majestic cities in the whole of the world at that time. But uh, whenever you think of Pergamum, think Edinburgh rather than Glasgow. In other words, Ephesus 
was like the Glasgow of Asia Minor, and Pergamum was like the Edinburgh of Asia Minor. Do you know what I mean by that? So Ephesus was bigger, and uh, because it was a significant port and it had all the trade passing through it, it was very much a big commercial center and, and very influential. Pergamum wasn't as big as, as Ephesus, but it had probably even classier buildings. And it was sort of like the political capital of Asia Minor. So it was what they called a proconsular province. And there was someone like high up in sort of Roman authority who was in charge of running Pergamum and through Pergamum, the rest of Asia Minor. So in the same way as Edinburgh is like the political capital of Scotland and Glasgow is like, or it certainly used to be the industrial workhorse of Scotland, so it was between Ephesus and Pergamum. Pergamum was classy, sorry, I'm going to get really into trouble here, isn't it? Pergamon was like classy, political Edinburgh, and uh, Ephesus was much more commercial and industrial in that sense. So keep those two things in the back of your mind. And because Pergamon was ruled by this really senior uh, Roman official, um, there was one thing that set him out from many of the other people in the town. And that was he carried a sword. And that sword symbolized his authority. He actually had the power of execution because he carried a sword on behalf of Caesar. He was the Roman authority, if you like. And that's why the very next part of chapter 2 goes on to say, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And you might remember, I think it was Andrew preaching three or four weeks ago, whenever we did the introduction to the seven churches, and we looked at this beautiful picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And uh, one of the things that characterized Jesus in Revelation 1 was this sword coming out of his mouth, symbolizing that his word ultimately is the one that carries authority. So as Jesus introduces us to the church at Pergamum. Everybody was thinking, Pergamum, Rome, it's like the political center. It's where Rome is able to exercise its authority. But Jesus starts off by saying, actually, I am the one whose words are like a sharp double-edged sword. You might think the proconsul who rules Pergamum and through Pergamum the rest of Asia Minor, that he's the one who is in control. Jesus was saying, no, I'm the one with the double-edged sword. I'm the one who has the authority. And nothing will happen in Pergamum or in this region without my knowledge and without my say-so. So at the very commencement of this story, Jesus is, in a sense, comparing himself and his ultimate authority with the limited authority of the Roman proconsul. He then goes on to say, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. But that first wee bit, I just thought that was really encouraging. I know where you live. I suspect some of us live in 
homes or in families where there isn't much encouragement for you to follow Jesus. Maybe sometimes your brothers or sisters or even your man, your dad or whatever, maybe aren't particularly enthusiastic or supportive of your following of Jesus. Jesus is going to come and say to you tonight, I I know where you live. I, I know how hard it is. I know how tough it is. There's nothing that happens in that context that misses my gaze. Or maybe at university or at school, and again, you feel, you know, under pressure. Again, you feel that you're in a group of friends or, or in a particular class or in a particular lecture group or whatever, and you're the only Christian, and, and it's all quite negative, and you kept feel getting pulled in different directions. Jesus would say to you tonight, I, I, I know. I know where you live. I, I know where you work. I know where you study. I, I just know where you hang out. And maybe it is in a work context. And again, you're finding your work context really hard. And it's really hard to stand up for Jesus without other people getting at you. Jesus says, that's okay. I know it's a tough place. I know that Pergamum is like one of the toughest places to try and follow me. But Jesus says, I know that. So what an encouragement it is to know that wherever you go tomorrow or even tonight and you think, you know, this is a tough place. I'd rather it be different. I'd rather be somewhere where there was more encouragement and more support. Jesus says, I know where you live. Even though you might feel on your own, nobody else really understands. Jesus says, I know your situation. And then he describes Pergamum as a place where Satan has his throne. And it's really difficult to know exactly what he means by that. There's a number of possibilities. So, for example, Pergamum was one of the first centers of what they called the imperial cult. Um, it all started really by Caesar Augustus, who decided um, that uh, he was really divine, that he was a godlike being. Like, this is Caesar. Like, surely he must have been deluded. But maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But the Caesars came to believe that they had a divine right to rule. And so they insisted that um, people would call them Lord. And the people would say, Caesar is Lord. And uh, so they ended up building these massive big temples that would be worshipping Caesar and acknowledging Caesar as Lord. So you can imagine in this context in Pergamum where there was such a temple, the people were saying, you know, if they are saying that Caesar is Lord, like how more satanic can you get? But also in um, Pergamum, there was a temple to Asclepios, who was like the god of healing. And um, the image actually was of a serpent. It's actually quite interesting how it's still an image that's used today um, in medical contexts. So 
some pharmaceutical brands. Um, this is actually the logo of the World Health Organization um, that has the serpent running down through it there. And that actually comes from um, the, the god Asclepios, uh, who had a massive temple uh, in Pergamum. And so Pergamum was a little bit like Lourdes in the ancient world. People came from all over because they believed that this god had divine power to bring healing to individuals. But maybe because his symbolism was one of a serpent, that that's why Jesus described Pergamum as a place of Satan's throne. But also in Pergamum, there was another temple to Zeus, who again was like one of the big gods of the ancient world. And one of his titles was the word soter, which actually is just the Greek word for savior. So people came and worshipped Zeus as the savior. And actually, could there be anything more antichrist, anything more satanic ultimately than that? And so for whatever reason, Pergamum was full of gods and temples that were totally opposed to Jesus. And he describes them ultimately as satanic. This is the place where Satan rules. Perhaps it makes home and university and work not so bad after all. But there was demands and pressure upon these people to uh, really uh, acknowledge that Caesar was Lord and that these gods were the ones who were rightfully to be worshipped. So he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And then he goes on to commend them. And he says, in spite of all of that, you have remained true to my name. And, and I think that's magic, isn't it? Do you know, living in a place such as Pergamum, with all these gods and all these temples, a place where, you know, Satan really seemed on the surface to be in control. And yet Jesus commends the believers there. And he says, you have remained true to my name. And he says, you didn't even renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. There appears to have been some particular time that he's referring to here, some particular time when there was a real opposition and real persecution. And during this time, uh, Antipas was put to death. And he describes Antipas as my faithful witness. And you know, that's brilliant. I actually hadn't noticed it before. But over in chapter 1, in that big image that we have of Jesus, Jesus is described as the faithful witness. Exactly the same phrase, exactly the same words in the original language. So Jesus is described as the faithful witness of God. And now here in the church in Pergamum, Antipas is described as the faithful witness of Jesus Christ. In the same way as Jesus was a totally 100% faithful in his ministry to God, so Antipas was 100% totally in in terms of his faithfulness to Christ. And if you go to Pergamum today, 
There's still lots of ruins, as you saw in one of the earlier slides. And there's still lots of inscriptions, you know, to the God, so-and-so, to the God. But read all the inscriptions, and uh, there's no mention of Antipas. But for over 2,000 years, Christians throughout the world have been telling the story of Antipas. Long after many of these temples have been raised to the ground, long after many of the other people who were significant proconsuls in the history of Pergamum, long after they've gone and been forgotten. Like, does anyone here know the name of any proconsul that lived in Pergamum? We don't, do we? But actually, tonight, every single person here has heard of Antipas, the faithful martyr, the faithful witness to the Lord Jesus. And millions of Christians throughout the world, not only today, but for 2,000 years, know who Antipas was. Someone who lived faithfully. Someone who refused to say, Caesar is Lord, but remained faithful to the Lord Jesus. And I think it's lovely to recognize tonight that there's no individual martyr that's ever forgotten by Jesus. Jesus knows where we live, and he knows everyone who lives there, and he knows everyone whose life is taken, even if they've been forgotten by the church, even if they've been forgotten by others in their nation. Jesus remembers those who faithfully served him in difficult times. And of course, we are continuing to live in difficult times. Almost certainly no one's going to put a gun to your head and say, you know, say so-and-so was Lord. And it's relatively easy for us to stand up at baptism and in other contexts and to say, yeah, I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Almost certainly in Scotland, no one's going to kill you. But we need to recognize that there's probably never been a time in the history of the world when more and more Christians are being killed today just because of their loyalty and their faithfulness to Jesus. Just a couple of years ago, you'll remember the story of these Christians uh, from Egypt who were working in Libya. And uh, they were taken and uh, paraded uh, onto a beach uh, in Libya. And uh, I think there were maybe 11 or 12 Egyptians and one man from Ghana who clearly looked different to the Egyptians. And uh, they asked them whether they would renounce their faith. And they said, no, they were people of the cross. And then whenever they came to uh, the final guy from Ghana, they weren't sure whether he was just working alongside these other Egyptian Christians or whether he was truly one of them as well. And of course, he could easily have got away scot-free by simply saying, no, no, I'm not really with these guys, you know. But he says, no, I'm... I'm a person of the cross as well. 
and all of them were beheaded there on the beach. You know, that's the reality for Christians in many parts of our world today. Even in somewhere like China, you know, the biggest issue in China is not whether they export their technology and their mobile phones to Britain. The biggest problem facing us as Christians in terms of China today is the fact that increasingly they are pressurizing the Christian church. There are millions and millions and millions of Christians in China, but that's still a relatively small percentage of such a populous nation. But there are pastors who are being detained. There are teachers and medics who are being forced to sign forms to declare that they are not followers of Jesus if they want to practice in certain contexts. In some regions, there are elderly people who, unless they say that they are atheists and part of the Communist Party or whatever, their pension is reduced. There are many, many followers of Jesus whose uh, churches are being demolished and who are being put in prison. You you see, whenever we think of China today, we, we think of this mega world power. And it's sort of come on in leaps and bounds. And yet, there is so much stuff happening even in China today, which helps us to remember that there are brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters of ours, in many different parts of the world, who are facing immense persecution. Who, if they stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, life becomes more hellish for them. But he then goes on to say, by way of condemnation, nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is probably the most complicated couple of verses in our little study tonight. But it's quite interesting because Jesus commends the Christians for like not giving in and standing their ground. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They acknowledged that Jesus was Lord. But Satan's a crafty git. Do you know, he knows how to get Christians to compromise. And so if I asked any of you, you know, and sort of put pressure on you, maybe, you know, your employer or somebody else in your family, if they sort of, you were home tonight and, and they said, look, I want you to say that somebody else's Lord, that Jesus is not my Lord, you would probably stand up and say, no, Jesus is my Lord. On the other hand, we can end up falling into the same trap as these Christians who end up getting seduced by the culture that was all around them. So the story that it's referring to in the Old Testament is the story of Balak, who was like a pagan king. And uh, he wanted to try and uh, conquer the children of Israel, God's people. And so he called his, like, magic prophet man, uh, 
Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. And it's a really funny story because Balaam says, yeah, no problem, you see. So he's going to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. And he sort of says, I bless the Israelites. And Balak looks and says, you've just said, God bless the Israelites. I've asked you to curse them. What did I really say that? So he goes a second time. And he says, I'm really going to curse them big time this time. And so he prays to his gods and he says, oh God of whatever, I want you to bless the children of Israel. And this went on three times. Every time, like Balaam tried to pour a curse upon the children of Israel, he ended up coming out with a blessing. So they scratched their head and thought, this isn't working. <laughs> like if I try and pour this curse upon them, it, it seems to be working against me. So Balaam up with an idea. He says, get some nice Moabite women and send them over into Israel camp. That will do the trick. And so that's what happened. And as a result, the people of God ended up compromising, ending up in sexual sin, ending up disobeying God and not following him wholeheartedly. And that was the same sort of story in the town of Pergamum. In one sense, God was able to say through Christ, I commend these guys. You know, they will stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. But Satan's this crafty get. He thinks, they won't stand up if I challenge them straight. So how can I seduce them? How can I try and encourage them to compromise a little bit? And we don't know exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is. Other than, obviously, it was tied in with the same sort of set of values as what happened at Balaam and Balak. So he was trying to seduce them just to live in the same way as the culture around him and to rationalize their behavior and to say, I'm, I'm sure it's okay. I'm sure God doesn't really mind if I act in this way. And of course, it was really tough because if you wanted to sort of live well in Pergamum, if you wanted to trade, if you wanted to run a little business, like all the stuff associated with that happened in the pagan temples where there was also sacred prostitution and all that sort of stuff. So if you wanted to sort of meet a business colleague or wanted to sort of try and do a business deal, like it wasn't done in Starbucks. It was done in one of these big temples where there was all sorts of dodgy stuff going on, all sorts of food sacrifice to idols, all sorts of cultic prostitution. And the church, obviously, many of them were saying, yeah, we need to live, and I'm sure God doesn't really mind us acting in this way, providing we... In, in some way in their thinking, they were able to convince themselves, or Satan was able to convince them that actually what they were doing was okay. I mean, Alex sort of hinted at that when she was talking about life in university. Like, it's easy, isn't it, to get sucked in to a group of friends or to a way of life where we end up compromising our values as Christians, particularly in the whole area of sexual ethics. 
And in some ways, we end up rationalizing our behavior. If someone in that group said to you, look, Alex, stand up and say that Jesus is not Lord. You'd probably say, no way. But Satan, this seducer, this smart git that I've described him as, he's far craftier than that. And even though we won't stand up and say, Jesus is not my Lord, he finds other ways to bring us down and our values end up being compromised. And so he comes and he says, repent therefore, otherwise I will come against you and fight you with the sword of my mouth, the one who has the authority. I think the image on the screen reminds us that ultimately to follow the ways of Satan is ultimately a dead end. It's a maze that we cannot get out of without God's help and the help of the Holy Spirit. We think that as we go in to this maze, although we wouldn't describe it in that way, that there's a pot of gold in the middle that will satisfy. But in the end, it brings nothing but disappointment. And so Jesus comes to these Christians, whom he commends, Jesus is Lord, well done guys. But some of you, have ended up compromising your faith and lowering your values because you've just been seduced and you've convinced yourself and you've allowed the evil one to convince you that actually your behavior is okay and ultimately it won't matter because in the end, Jesus will just forgive you anyway. But he comes and he says, look, repent. Repent because you need to address this way of life. You need to say, God, I'm sorry, I've messed up here. And be committed with his help to live in a different way. And so the last couple of verses, he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, to the one who says, Jesus is Lord, and the one also who doesn't allow himself to be seduced by the evil one. He says, I'll do two things. He says, I will give you the hidden manna. Uh, again, reference back to the Old Testament, where manna was this like supernatural food that was provided by God to the Israelites in the wilderness. And we can't be exactly sure what he's referring to. But he's almost certainly saying, look guys, I know that some of the food that you eat in the pagan temples is, is, is good stuff. I know you enjoy going to the pagan banquets. I know you do some crazy deals there that enable you to live really well. But remember that I've actually invited you as my bride to come and participate in the wedding supper of the Lamb. And there's going to be a heavenly banquet that will satisfy you for eternity. And so he talks about this heavenly manna, which will satisfy eternally and which will be provided supernaturally in contrast to the pagan banquets that ultimately will not satisfy and ultimately cause them to fall. And he says also, 
I will give you uh, a white stone with a new name written on it. Like every commentary you pick up gives you a different interpretation about what the white stone means. Like I think I read about 12 different interpretations. So like just go with whatever you think. That's probably not a very good approach to biblical hermeneutics. But um, you've, you've seen these little white stones, you know, like with mummy on them or, or my little grandson picked up one out of the river up at uh, Lennox Town when he was over last and, and he wrote my name on it, you know, Papa, and then give it to me. Oh, it was really sweet. And it wasn't as it cost him nothing, but, but it reminded me that, that he had a special relationship with me and that he loved me. That was nice. So in, in, in New Testament times, and, and particularly in Pergamum, uh, one of the ways that you got in to uh, one of these pagan banquets was that you were given a stone, sometimes a white stone. And that was like a ticket into the banquet. And sometimes it would have like the name of the patron, the person who was sponsoring the banquet. Their name would be on the stone or on the little leather thing, whatever. But perhaps their name would be on, you know, in the same way as we say today, you know, you're invited to some big dinner and it's sponsored by whatever. So they would be given a little stone and on it would be the name of the patron who was, who was uh, providing this beautiful banquet in the temple of Zeus or whatever. Cultic prostitutes provided after dinner, you know, whatever. You know. And Jesus says, look, those stones are worthless. I'm going to give you a stone and... Uh, and on it will be the name of Christ. And in a sense, he's saying this is symbolic of the fact that if you live for me, you will be able to enter into heaven. And actually, to enter into heaven and enjoy my presence is ultimately far more worthwhile than getting into a silly pagan banquet where you think, whoa, this is really exciting, getting invited here and do you know what we're going to do after dinner and all? You know, it all seems so seductful. But Jesus says, stay loyal to me, remain faithful to me, and I'll give you a white stone with my name on it. And that's almost like an assurance metaphorically that one day he will welcome us into his heaven. So let's take a moment to pray. Father God, uh, thank you that you are the one that bears the sword. Thank you that in this town, in this community, in this nation, that ultimately it's not any local authority, any government, any chief minister who carries and wields the ultimate power. That you are the one with the double-edged sword. You are the sovereign God you are the one ultimately before whom each one of us will stand or fall. Thank you for reminding us tonight that you know where we are. You know where we have to live. You know where we have to hang out day by day. And you know how tough that is sometimes. Thank you for reminding us of Antipas, this faithful martyr, who continued to say that Jesus is Lord, even when it meant losing his life. And so help us 
tonight and tomorrow to be willing to acknowledge before whoever that Jesus is our Lord and we serve him. And yet help us to be wary of that crafty git Satan who is so knowledgeable and so seductful and so crafty that he winds his way into our lives through the culture of which we are a part. And he tries to get us to compromise and to enter into stuff that ultimately will disappoint us and that ultimately we're ashamed of. Help us to be aware of that, to resist the evil one. And where we have been taken in, help us to repent and to seek with the help of the Holy Spirit to do what is right. And thank you for your promise that if we live for you, you will feed us at your heavenly banquet and that you will give us a white stone and assure us of our place with you in eternity forever. So help us, God.